0: Let's get rolling here. Uh, I got to calm myself down a little bit and uh, let's sorry, there's stragglers in the back. Okay. Let's uh, thank you, Hoyt. Let's open with prayer. Almighty God, we thank you again for this opportunity to gather, to to know your Spirit is present here, as we talk not about your Word, but about your Church and about the struggles that it has gone through. I I pray that you will redeem us, redeem your bride as it exists now from error, that we will, we will know the truth, that we will proclaim the truth, that we will not lead others into heresy, that we will not follow in the footsteps of many of those who, who erred during this time. So help their example guide us in what not to do, and in some cases, what to do. In your name we ask this. Amen. Okay. Um <clears throat> This will be a strange class, because it is... <laughs> why is that funny? <laughs> <the> <laughs> <laughs> well, look who's teaching it, so um again this this is one of those classes where there's going to be a a larger political element um and and part of the reason for that is because the church in this time just is entwined in the politics and there's there's just a a confusion between the secular and the ecclesial so i mean the 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 history of the church at this time is as much a history of the fight over right doctrine as it is a fight over who's in charge—the king or the pope—and and these issues bleed into one another at this time. So it's 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 very difficult, especially in the span of fifty minutes, to to really. Uh, Cover both aspects conclusively, so anyway, with that let's let us begin then <clears throat> and and to begin, I want to go back and uh, look at uh, Charlemagne, who is a a pivotal figure in the west, and he he is going to establish an empire that in one form or another is going to last until 1806. So it's it's and it's going to have a profound impact on the history of the church as well as the secular nations. So if you look, and I don't have any maps in the notes today, so if you are interested in any of the maps that you see up here, let me know and I can get them for you. But you have here if it's difficult to see, I apologize, a map of Europe in about 800. And this big purple blob right here in the middle is Charlemagne's empire. Now, Charlemagne is the king of the Franks. So once again, we're still dealing with the Franks. And he is the grandson of Charles Martel, who is also a very important figure in history for two reasons. One, he is going to establish a new dynasty in the Frankish kingdom. So he will supersede the dynasty of Clovis, who we talked about last week. Remember, Clovis was the king of the Franks who was a pagan, but was baptized as a Christian and led the pagan Franks into the church. So Charles Martel is going to supersede uh, Clovis's dynasty as the ruling power in the Frankish kingdom. But even more importantly, in 736, he is going right here at the Battle of Tours. Up here, he is going to defeat the armies of Islam who are invading France. Islam has exploded out of the Arabian Peninsula, conquered Persia, and marched all the way across North Africa, conquered Spain, and are now encroaching into France. But Charles Martel at the Battle of Tours is going to stop them and chase them back over the Pyrenees into Spain, where they will then stay, and never again will they threaten Western Europe again. So that is a profound victory that is going to alter the course of history. If, if the West had fallen to Islam, the history of the church would be very different. So Charles Martel is is on his own aside from the founding of this dynasty holds an important position in not so much the history of the church but in the history of Christianity he is he is seen as one of the great protectors of the church His grandson so his son Pepin will continue the expansion the reinvigoration of the Frankish kingdom and then his grandson Charles, Charlemagne is not what he was called back then. That's just French for Charles the Great. So he would have been known by his Latin name back then, which is Carolus, uh, which is the Latin form of Charles, but we just call him Charlemagne. Um, Charlemagne is going to expand his empire even further, taking it into Italy, which the Franks had never been in before. And expanding it into the eastern parts of Germany. And famously, he is going to conquer the Saxons. And he is going to convert them to the church. The leader of the Saxons that he had been fighting was named Weidukent. And he was a pagan. He famously had a very large oak tree that he worshipped at. But Charlemagne, I mean, he was a, a pagan of the pagans. But Charlemagne affected uh, him in such a way that Viducant, uh accepted Christ. And this was not a, a conversion by the sword, but Vidukint himself became uh, a fervent believer in Christ and spread the gospel into the Saxons, uh, even beyond, and, and beyond the Saxons, beyond where Charlemagne had conquered. And uh, he cut down his tree, as a testimony to Christ, and and ultimately, uh, in the Catholic Church, Vidukint is is seen as one of the great missionary saints. But uh, that's going to be a consequence of Charlemagne's activity. However, the most consequential aspect of Charlemagne's reign is going to be on Christmas Day in the year 800, and he'd already been reigning for decades by this point, so he is an older man. But he is going to become the protector of the Pope in Rome. And as a consequence, during, they're celebrating a Christmas mass in Rome. And the Pope is going to get up and crown Charlemagne, Emperor of the Romans. So this is the first time there has been a Roman emperor in the West since 476. Now obviously he is not Roman, but they are reviving the office of Western Roman Emperor. And that is going to have uh, monumental reverberations flying out of it all over the place. Um, obviously, the Eastern emperors in Constantinople are not going to like this because they were very comfortable being the, sole, the highest secular authority in, in the Christian world. But it's also going to set up a tension now between this supreme ecclesial authority in the pope and now this new supreme secular authority in the emperors and (coughs) that is something that is going to dominate the church for the next several hundred years probably the next 500 years and beyond but really be an issue for a long time to come (coughs) uh after Charlemagne dies, his kingdom is divided up between his three sons, and which was customary among Frankish tradition. There wasn't one successor to the king. Whoever, whatever the kingdom was at that time when he died, his kingdom was divided up between all his offspring. And so it's ultimately going to be divided up into thirds, and it's not going to be divided up along clear geographic lines you're basically going to have one son get this chunk and one son get this eastern chunk and one son get the central chunk down into Italy so it's going to be a very arbitrary decision and the easternmost chunk is going to be called East Francia and the last descendant of Charlemagne is going to die there in the year 911 and After that, a Saxon lord is going to claim the throne of East Francia. His name is Henry the Fowler. And here we are, we're getting into, you know, these classic Middle Ages kinds of names and knights and all that kind of stuff. Well, Henry the Fowler will ultimately reign in East Francia and then he will die. But his son in 936, his son Otto will ascend the throne And Otto is going to partially rebuild Charlemagne's empire. If you can go to the next map. Uh, Yeah. Did I write 9? Yeah, 963 is correct. Yeah, that's the correct date. So, again, the colors don't show up really good on here, but what he does is he... This area, this this is blue and this is purple. I know it doesn't show up really good. But this central area and down into Italy, Otto is going to reconstitute two-thirds of Charlemagne's empire. And he is going to be drawn then into Rome, just as Charlemagne had. And once again, now we're going on to the second page. And there's a lot of detail on the first page that you can read about later. Um, uh, Otto is going to also be crowned emperor of the Romans but this time with an explicit agreement with the pope that the popes are the supreme spiritual authority in the west and the emperors are their equal and their secular protector and so this relationship with the church that the empire now has, it's a new relationship, is what is going to give rise to what is now called the Holy Roman Empire, which Voltaire famously said was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. But uh, it's, it's that office of the, the emperor of the West now having a joint regency, if you will, with the popes that's going to give it that holy holy moniker. And so this, this institution of the Holy Roman Empire will actually uh, continue on in some fashion or another until 1806 when Napoleon will abolish it. And, and he saw it as a political necess- necessity to abolish it because he saw himself as the heir to the Romans, and so he needed the other rightful heir to the Romans to be done away with. So this is important for a number of reasons. I mean, one is, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, is just this rivalry between the popes and the emperors. But also, when we get to Martin Luther in a few weeks, when Hoyt is going to talk about it, Martin Luther is going to have to go before Charles V, and Charles V was, he's not well known in in America at least now, but he was a profoundly important person in in European history. Uh, He was going to be the Holy Roman Emperor, but through dynastic succession, he's also going to be the King of Spain. He's the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella. And he is the first man in the world to have a truly global empire. So you think of all of Spain's new territories in the New World, the Philippines and Asia, all of those territories are now, they belong to Charles V. He is also the emperor in Central Europe. So about a third of Europe is under his control. And when Martin Luther has to stand before him, he's standing before the most powerful man in the world, and he is literally alone and fighting for the gospel in the face of the most powerful secular authority in the world. So, you know, it's just important to have a, a, an idea of what Luther was up against. And so this, it's this refounding of, of the, the, the empire, what we call the Ottonian or, you know, Otto's empire, that uh, is going to set the stage for that. But also it's important for a couple other reasons. If you look at the map, this third of Charlemagne's empire that Otto did not take control of, what does that look like? France. There you have the birth of France. So Charlemagne's empire is divided. Otto fails to conquer that western third. Now it's on its own independent trajectory through history. What does this central part look like? Germany now you have a reason why Germany is a separate nation from France. I mean, the, these, uh, it, the, these are consequential events that are taking place that are setting the stage for the, the world as we know it today. So they're important in church history, but they're just important for us in terms of understanding how things came to be. I mean, Germany uh, didn't just happen. France didn't just happen. I mean, there are reasons why these countries are what they are. And so this this tension, and now I'm going to deviate from the notes here for a minute because I didn't have time to put this in the notes. And so you won't find this in there. But this tension that exists between the church and the state now, between the popes and the emperors, is going to where Otto and the pope had a harmonious relationship. That's going to after otto is gone that's going to disintegrate really fast and it's going to result in what we call the investiture controversy cuz remember the, the emperors were set up as an authority within the church they are they're not the spiritual head but in a sense they're they're the protector of the church they have a role with the secular authority has a role within the functioning of the church and so successors to otto are going to claim the right to appoint bishops. So, who are the bishops? Well, the bishops are the leaders of a church in a given area. So, uh, you know, the, the pope is the bishop of Rome. That's all he is. He's the, it's not like God said, you know, my church is centered in Rome, and the, the leader of the church in Rome is the leader of the entire church. I mean, that's what Roman Catholics assert, but that's not how the church was initially set up. Initially, the pope was the bishop of the city of Rome. And because Rome was the capital of the empire and also had a strong apostolic heritage, I mean, who was in Rome? Peter and Paul. I mean, that's a pretty... You don't get more apostolic than that. And, so the, and, and Peter and Paul were leaders of the church in Rome, and so they had a profound not just in terms of Scripture, and their writing of Scripture, but just in the formation of the church. They had a profound role in the formation of the early church, and so subsequent leaders of the, city of, of the church in the city of Rome are going to be looked on as important leaders. But that's going to be corrupted and metastasized until the popes are going to claim control over everything. Except They now have this pesky emperor to deal with. And so they're going to have this tension. And now the emperors are claiming for themselves in their role as protector for the church the right to appoint people to be the spiritual leaders within the church. And that's where the term investiture controversy comes from because they are investing these bishops with their offices And so the popes and the emperors for several hundred years are going to be in conflict with one another over this issue. And ultimately, it's going to lead to the famous scene where the emperor, Henry IV, is the pope is in his his castle up in the Alps. And it's during winter and the pope has now excommunicated the emperor over this issue. Excommunicated means he is damned to hell. I mean that literally. He is it's not like if if somebody was sinning in our church and we say we, we you can no longer we you can no longer be in our church. If you are excommunicated back then you can't take the Lord's Supper, you cannot receive any of the, any of the other sacraments. You are unable to and the way the sacraments are starting to function which you know the way that the sacraments function now in the Catholic Church is starting to manifest itself at this time in the Middle Ages. Maybe I should talk about that for a second. How do I want to put this? So, okay. I went to a Catholic high school, and this was the way one of my teachers, who's a priest, taught me how sanctification worked or how grace works how the sacraments work in the catholic church so this is from him this isn't me trying to belittle it but he he says you know each person has a gas tank in effect and the gas tank is filled with the grace of god and each time you sin you're burning a little bit of that gas so the gas level continues to drop and if it gets empty you're in trouble you're going to go to hell. So, the way you continually refill your gas tank as you sin is you participate in the sacraments. So, every time you take the Lord's Supper, every time you go to confession, every time you do all these, you know, there's, at one point, I don't remember how many there were, like 138 sacraments in the church, but they've narrowed it down to seven. So, it's, Lord's Supper, baptism, marriage, last rites, ordination, that's five, confession, that's six, confirmation, that's seven. So every time you do any of those things, your, gas, your, your grace gas tank is getting fuller and fuller. And as you sin, it's dropping down. Why do you need to go to confession? Well, you need to raise your, gas tank, your grace gas tank again. So this is the way it was explained to me as by a priest when I was in high school. So if you're excommunicated, you can't participate, you can't refill your gas tank. It's empty. You just, somebody just came and punched a screwdriver in it and drained it out for you. I mean, that's basically what the Pope did to the emperor was he got excommunicated. He has no way to access the grace of God. And, so, and by the way, that process of refilling your gray gas tank, that to the Catholic Church is what they call sanctification, which is very different from what we teach as far as sanctification goes. Um, well, they wouldn't, but yeah. I mean, it's getting, it's it's what we would call, sim. boy, we're going off in the weeds. It's what we would call semi-Pelagian, where Pelagius was teaching, That, you know, no person was born sinful, that original sin didn't exist, and that through your works, God gives you grace. I mean, so that's the fancy term for salvation by works. But it was originally taught by a guy named Pelagius. And so semi-Pelagians are kind of, you know, they would deny what Pelagius says, but they would set sort of a conditional spiritual works in place where you, you... Salvation is by grace, but you got to do these X number of things to access that grace. And, and, so th- I mean, and that's what the Catholic Church teaches today. So, but that teaching is, is really starting to manifest at this time in the history of the church. And part of that is it's a handy cudgel with which to keep people in submission as far as the authorities of the church they wield a lot of power. And so in this particular case, the emperor has been excommunicated and uh, he ends up walking barefoot through the snow high up in the Alps wearing nothing but a hair shirt and spends three days in the snow barefoot outside the gates of this castle before the pope will condescend to allow him to come in and repent. So it's kind of the high watermark of the papacy because they have now subdued the emperor himself and, and, and brought him into, into submission through fairly blunt measures. Um, so it's, it's, an, it's an important event in the history of the church, in the history of secular Europe, But it's going to be undone, that authority of the church is going to, at the same time this is going on, there are intellectual movements within the church that are going to be a large player in undoing these developments. That's called scholasticism, and that's the last thing I want to talk about today, so I don't want to talk about that yet, so we'll come back to that. Any questions? I'm sorry to go way off the map there on the... the, the sacraments and and grace and things. Um, So this increasing power of the popes is also going to come into play in another pivotal event in the history of the church. And that is what we call the great schism. Uh, Can you go to the next map? There we go. That one's a little easier to see. So here you can see the Holy Roman Empire again. just, And you can see the eastern or the western part, which obviously is now France. But over here is the Byzantine Empire. even has parts of Italy in it. And that's the Eastern Roman Empire. It has never, ever gone away up to this point. There has been a continual line of emperors from Augustus all the way to the present time that we're talking about. It's unbroken. And they still call themselves Romans. They speak Greek now, and they're, you know, they don't speak Latin, but many of their traditions and, and everything are all still very Roman, except now it's Christian Roman. And when Islam first came on the scene, the empire was knocked back on its heels a lot. But starting in the mid-9th century, so that's about the 860s, it's going to be resurgent. And this is what we call the Macedonian Renaissance. And for a time, it's going to become the most powerful empire in the world once again. A very different world from when Rome was, was powerful, but now once again in the Middle Ages, it's going to become dominant. And you can see it's I mean, it's this is just a bunch of loose tribes. It's not like a full kingdom, but you can see this is a pretty expansive empire for this time period. And so they are this with renewed confidence. These the the Eastern Church is going to start to assert itself more. Where before it was focused on survival, now it's very capable of. Projecting its power. And that power is, they're going to be looking to write a few things that they thought were wrong in the church. Some of those, well, this is stuck all of a sudden. It's like it clipped onto me by itself. Yeah. Sorry. This clip, the clip in the back got stuck. Anyway. Um, So, There's several things that are going to be at issue, but the two most critical are going to be, one, the filioque clause. Does anyone remember what that is from last week? That is their assertion in the West, the insertion into the Nicene Creed that when they say the Holy Spirit proceeds... The original creed said, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. But in the West they inserted into the creed the statement that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And filioque is just Latin for and the Son. And that was done for good reasons, because they were battling Arianism. Because remember, the barbarian tribes that invaded were all Arian Christians, most of them. Some were pagan. None were Orthodox Nicene Christians. And so the West, for the first time, is having to fight Arianism on a large scale because it had always been confined to the East. And so in order to emphasize the deity of Christ, they were arguing that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son because the Son must be God if the Holy Spirit is also proceeding from the Father. And they're looking to parts in the Gospel where Christ says that he is sending a helper. You know, he is sending it. And they're taking that very literally to say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the the Son as well as the Father. And ultimately, theologically, I don't think that's that's right. But it was coming from an important place of the defense of the deity of Christ. But the East is going to say, yeah, that's That's not right. We don't think that theologically you can really sustain that argument that the Holy Spirit proceeds from Father and Son. And they're willing to discuss and debate that, but what they really don't like is the ecumenical creed, the creed that the church, that all the church has agreed on as the definitive statement of what they believe was altered by one side and not in unity with each other. And that's going to really rankle the Eastern Church. Now, there's already been divisions between East and West for a long time. I mean, even back before the Roman Empire fell, it was common for there to be an Eastern half and a Western half with two equal and brotherly emperors, but one governed one half and one governed the the other half. And there were cultural differences with the Latin-speaking West and the Greek-speaking East. So these divisions had been present for a long time. But now, as the politics is mixing with the the church, these divisions are becoming deeper and deeper. And so the filioque clause plus this new ascendant papacy claiming authority over the whole church is going to cause irreparable differences between East and West. And ultimately, uh, the Pope is going to send... A group empowered to speak with his name to Constantinople to uh, discuss this matter. And suffice to say, it's not going to go well because, bef- and this is in the year 1054, before they leave, both sides have excommunicated the other side. So, you know, the Catholic side has said, You guys are outside the bounds of the church and damned to hell. And the Eastern side says, Oh, yeah? Well, no, you're outside the church, and you're damned to hell. I mean, and it just becomes a tit for tat, and they literally and they leave, and never again are the churches in unity. They are officially separated one from the other. And interestingly, in 1965, the the two the Orthodox and Catholic churches uh, lifted the anathemas on the other, but it did not result in them rejoining each other. They are not one church uh structurally today but uh so the the schism of 1054 is going to be a momentous event in the history of the church because now you have two separate churches two universal churches there's going to be a third schism we don't call it that but what do we what is it yeah the reformation it's going to result in the third great tradition of the church But this first schism, the great schism, is where you now have two traditions on totally separate trajectories. And they're going to bump into each other, but now they are separate. So it is a watershed event in the history of the church. But old habits die hard. Third page. And even though the churches are separate they still at times will recognize their common Christian faith. And when this, the Eastern Empire suffers a massive setback in 1071, they're going to lose a lot of the heartland of their territory after they lose, stupidly lose a battle to the Seljuk Turks the emperor who's going to take the throne, who's actually a very competent emperor, and he's going to begin a, a hundred year restoration of the empire as his son, he and his son and his grandson, all rule wisely and well and are capable rulers, and they are going to restore the empire. It's not a full restoration, but it's a successful partial restoration, restoring it to its former glories for a time. But the part of that restoration was this, this first emperor, Alexius Komnenos. He's going to say, we need soldiers and we need them now. And so he is going to issue a call to soldiers in the West to come and fight for him and to expel the, the heathen Muslims. <clears throat> and the Pope is going to latch onto this because the Pope, you know, he's got his own problems. Uh... You know, he's got too many lords and not enough land for lords, and so they're fighting with each other all the time. So there's constant warfare in the West, just internecine warfare. He's going to start to preach the taking of the cross and to go fight the Muslims in the Holy Land. Now, where Alexios is saying, come fight for me and help us restore our lands, it's going to morph into something totally different. And they're going to gather these huge armies of the West and march east, and they're not going to help the Eastern Empire recover its lands. They're going to go straight down into Jerusalem and take these lands for themselves. This is what we call the Crusades. So, I mean, what is a crusade? Well, it comes from the Latin word for cross, crux. And so they are going to take up their cross and bear it by killing the infidel, by killing... Muslims. And so this is going to become this weird militant epic in the history of the church. Epoch, not epic, like not, you know, E-P-O-C-H, not E-P-I-C. And a lot of the knights who are going to go over there are actually monks. They're warrior monks. It's just, it's a very strange and militant time in the history of the church can you go to the next slide and they are going to successfully establish four kingdoms in what they call outremer which is french for oversea and and that the holy land has kind of just come to be called that so outremer and you're going to establish four latin kingdoms in the holy land this is when the term Holy Land is even popularized. You know, we call it the Holy Land now. Well, this is when they first started calling it that. And so all of these states are going to be deferential to this one. This is the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And it's, it's a really interesting history. At one, You know, it, it's a, we don't have time to really go into detail about it, but it's, it's fascinating. And there's going to be a lot of interesting uh, theological gymnastics to justify this. So, I mean, they're going to look to Joshua's uh, conquest of Canaan, and not just conquest, but devotion. Uh, and that's what we call we call it the devotion of the Canaanites, where where God tells him to devote them to destruction. So we call it the devotion of the Canaanites. And so they are going to say, God told us to go do this. We are just doing what God already has commanded us to do. So, and they're going to look to other passages in the Bible where there's militant language. Augustine is going to be brought to bear. Remember what I talked about he developed a just war theory. They're going to look to Augustine for justification for this. And ultimately, it's going to ha- you know be successful for about 100 years. The biggest black mark on the Crusades is in 1099 when they finally captured Jerusalem. And the armies have been enduring great hardship for four years in this conquest. When they finally get into the city of Jerusalem, they're not going to treat it like a holy city, but they're going to run through it wholesale and slaughter everybody. And that... That one event, more than anything else, is what gives the Crusades a bad name. I'm not saying they were great. I'm just saying that, you know, that event colors the entire endeavor past up what had happened before it and what's going to happen after it. That, that slaughter of, of Jerusalem was a, was a big black mark on the Crusades. Um, and it's an interesting event in and of itself while the city, is, you know, the soldiers are running through the city just slaughtering everybody, including Christians, the Christian residents of the city, Muslim, Christian, Jew, everybody's getting slaughtered. The leaders of the crusade had gone into the church of the Holy Sepulcher, you know, where Jesus was buried, and they're praying and holding church services in there, while outside in the rest of the city, their armies are just slaughtering everybody. It's like they just lost control of them. So, but, uh, and, you know, there were, there were multiple crusades. Um, The first crusade is the only one that was a wholesale success. All the other crusades are going to meet with diminishing returns after that. The second crusade is going to come when the county of Edessa is going to fall. They're going to gather an army and try to go reconquer Edessa, and they're not going to. The third crusade is going to happen when Jerusalem itself finally falls to Saladin, the the great Islamic leader, which incidentally, uh, if you've heard of Kurds, you know, like in Iraq, the Kurds, Saladin, who's a famous in, you know, stories of knights and Richard the Lionhearted, Saladin was a Kurd. Uh, It was like the high watermark of the Kurds as a civilization and as a people. But uh, the Third Crusade is going to go to try to retake Jerusalem, and that will be led by Richard the Lionhearted, you know, famous Robin Hood fame. You know, he's away fighting the Crusades, and John's trying to take the throne in England, and Robin Hood has to resist, and so on, et cetera, et cetera. But it will fail, ultimately, in retaking Jerusalem, And then the fourth crusade is the other big black mark on the crusades because they made it as far as Constantinople and they decided, why go fight in Outremer when we can just stay here and take over this city? And so they sacked Constantinople, expelled the emperors and even though the empire will last for another 250 years, that ultimately was the mortal wound that will kill the Eastern Roman Empire. So the Fourth Crusade will be a total, total disaster. However, the Crusades, and here we're going to get into a little more theology and, and things like that, The Crusades are going to be one of the significant pieces of the puzzle that will ultimately lead to the Renaissance. What is the Renaissance? Well, Renaissance, the word, literally just is French for rebirth. Rebirth of what? And that is Greek and Roman culture, learning, and civilization. So as an expression of that, Just think about, I mean, I should have put some pictures in my slideshow, but you think about what medieval art looks like. It's very two-dimensional and primitive. When you get to the Renaissance, suddenly you have the human form in this glorious uh, depiction that where all of its form is accurate and proportional and detailed and light matters in its positioning on the body, and all of those things, because that is all a rebirth of the way that it was done in Greek and Roman times. You think Greek and Roman statues, how accurate their forms are. And you think of like Michelangelo's David, or his Pieta, the, I mean this phenomenal piece of art with you know the, the crucified Christ laying on the lap of Mary. I don't know if, if you haven't seen a picture of it, or haven't seen it in person, I recommend you do, because it's it's hard to believe that that can be cut from a stone. It's, it's just, it's glory to God that he made humanity in his image that, to be able to create something like that. But it's the rediscovery of those kinds of things. It's the rebirth of that kind of thing. And so, and remember in the Dark Ages with the, the coming of the barbarian tribes, all of that was lost. I mean, not totally, there was a flicker here and there of that kind of of learning, the, the, the retention of the, the heights that had been achieved during what we call the Classical Age, the Greek and Roman Age. And one of the things that the Crusaders are going to do is bring back with them some of that learning that the Muslims had preserved when they conquered parts of the Roman Empire, Another thing that the Re- Crusaders are going to bring back in even greater quantities is that learning of the Greeks and the Romans that the Eastern Empire had never lost, it never went away. But they're going to return to Western Europe with these things, these writings, these ideas. And the same thing, even though we haven't talked about it, is going to be going on in Spain. Because in Spain, there is what we call the La La Reconquista is really getting going where Muslim Spain is starting to be reconquered by Christians. And so, and Muslim Spain was actually the the epicenter of learning in the Muslim world. And that's where, uh, well, anyway, I don't want to go into the weeds on that. I don't have a lot of time left. Um, (laughs) So uh, Muslim Spain, I'll just say this. Jewish people often look at Muslim Spain as the greatest flowering of Jewish culture since the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So that th- there were many, many great Jewish scholars in Muslim Spain at this time. Um, anyway, so all of this to say is this is beginning a slow trickle of, of classical knowledge returning into the West and the chief among them, of of the writers that are going to be brought back, is Aristotle. And there are a number of reasons why Aristotle is going to be very popular. Um, Can you go to the next slide? Speaking of Renaissance art, I know it's far away. This This is in the Vatican. This is painted on the wall of one of the rooms in one of the Pope's rooms. It's by the Renaissance artist Raphael. It's one of my favorite paintings, possibly my favorite, and it's called The School of Athens. And in it, you have a depiction of all the great philosophers of Athens. And they, you know, Euclid, Archimedes, Pythagoras, Plato, Aristotle, they're all there. Heraclitus and uh, in the center, you have Aristotle and Plato. Can you go to the next slide? So here's a close-up of them. And again, notice the form, you know, it's very accurate depiction of, of the human form, which, compared to medieval art, is not the case, I assure you. This is Plato, and this is Aristotle. Incidentally, the face on Plato is Leonardo da Vinci. That's who Raphael used for his model. But look at their hands. What's Plato pointing to? Yeah, he's pointing up to the heavens. What's Aristotle doing? He's not just pointing down to the earth. He's holding his hand out in an encompassing fashion. And that's because it is a depiction of the differences in their philosophies. Plato was the father of the spiritual philosophy where he says there is an ultimate spiritual world and everything in the physical world that we see is a corruption of that. It's a basis for Gnosticism. But Aristotle, who was Plato's student, he rejected Plato's teachings. They say all philosophy is a footnote to Plato. Plato. Well, Aristotle is the biggest footnote. He rejects Plato, and he says, No, the earth and all of its things are good. Both of them were asking the question, How do we live the good life? That was the question posed by Socrates. And so all philosophers after Socrates, in some fashion, are trying to answer that question, How do we live the good life? which is a departure from previous Greek philosophy, which was asking the question, what is the world made of? So that's why Socrates is such a pivotal figure. He's asking a different question. And all the philosophers after him, in some fashion, are trying to answer Socrates' question. But Aristotle, in particular, is going to be very appealing to Christians because... He sees the physical world not as a corruption. What did God say when he made the world? It's good. And Aristotle is also, he's very concerned with how to live the good life in this world. And that's the question that the church was, you know, that we're all confronted with. I mean, ultimately, our answer is Christ. But Aristotle is still asking, in effect, the same question, but he's going to find different answers, but answers that aren't wholly at odds with the Christian faith. And so, in the Middle Ages, Aristotle is going to become the great fount of knowledge for those who are starting to rediscover learning and ideas and philosophy, and that's going to give birth to a school of... Theologians that we call the scholastics. This is going back. I don't even remember what I what brought scholastics up earlier. Uh, But I said we're going to get back to them. Here we are. So they're going to be, the church itself is going to be consumed with this question of how do we reconcile the teachings of Aristotle, which make Help us make sense of the world with Scripture, which is our authority for the world. And, I mean, don't forget, Aristotle did many, many, many things. But one of the things he did, he's kind of the father of, of science and taxonomy. I mean, he, he divided the, the world up into, like, botany and zoology and geology and hydrology. All of these disciplines of study. He's the first one that divided it up and said, we need to study plants. And here's all the things that I can observe about a plant that they have in common or that they differ from each other. Or look at the animals. I can study the animals and I can see that a cat is a different from a dog, but there are small cats and big, you know, I mean, he's, he's dividing knowledge up into orders. And so he helps people make sense of the world. And so in this benighted, dark age, Aristotle comes onto the scene and he's helping people make sense of a world that is hard for them to grapple with and but he's not a christian and so there is going to be this tension between aristotle and christianity and they really 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 want to claim aristotle as authoritative and so they are going to then begin to pursue lines of thinking that are going to be trying to justify the existence of god along rational grounds and <clears throat> because for aristotle the understanding of the world was dependent on your use of reason your your fact your your logical faculties. And so they are going to bring reason to bear on theology. It's not just going to be theology in mysticism and superstition or just a blind acceptance of faith that is devoid of reason. They are going to pursue the faith in a reasonable fashion. Now, this is going to have a positive effect and a negative effect. One is, that's negative, is they are going to, some of them, not all of them, some of the scholastics are going to go too far and blend the faith too deeply with Aristotle. They're going to look at Aristotle through a Christian lens, and that's going to bring, let error creep into the church. There are those who are going to stay true to the gospel and true to scripture, and they're going to look at Aristotle through a Christian lens. So one's looking at scripture or through the looking at Christianity through an Aristotelian lens, one's going to look at Aristotle through a Christian lens. You see the difference? So it depends on what your basic presuppositions are. But those who are presupposing Aristotle and looking at the church are going to lead the church into error. And those who are going to presuppose the truth of scripture and say yeah Aristotle gives us some tools to help us understand the world they're going to be holding fast on things that are true does that make sense so you're going to have a new tension and ultimately all of us here today we are all products of this tension I mean we don't say that Christianity we say it's a faith we have faith but it's what it's a reasonable faith, right? I mean, we say that. That's, that's, that. That kind of articulation flows out of this struggle. So the, the church is having to grapple with new forms of knowledge mixing with the faith or in, inflecting itself on the faith. So it ultimately uh, will march us that closer to the Reformation, and Hoyt's going to start covering that next week, is the, the late Middle Ages and, and how people are going to recognize that there's error and uh, start to push back against that. I just got a couple minutes left, and I, I want to end with, I'll just end with this. <clears throat> Even as the church was undergoing all these changes and struggling to find purity of doctrine when all of these influences are creeping in. There's, you know, throughout the history of God's people, there has always been a remnant. There's a doctrine, we call it the doctrine of the remnant. It's not taught often, but it's true. I mean, what was, what was Noah? He was a remnant. He was the faithful remnant. What was Abraham? He was the faithful remnant. You know, we see this time and time and time again. God will always preserve a remnant of his people. And that doesn't mean that his remnant is always going to have every doctrine perfect. But the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the love of God will always be preserved in that remnant. And even in these Middle Ages, that doctrine that remnant is still being preserved. So one of the great preachers of the church at that time was a monk named Bernard of Clairvaux. And Bernard's a difficult figure to really grapple with because he was a powerful, he was a powerful leader of the church. He is also one of the progenitors of how the church now adores Mary got it wrong. But he was also a very powerful articulator of the doctrine of grace and justification in a time when the gas tank model was really taking root. So when we get to the reformation, guys like Luther and Calvin are going to look back and say Bernard, you really got the merry thing wrong but you were spot on on grace. You got it. And so, you know, the reformers are going to look at these guys and they're going to be able to sift through the error and the rightness. And part of their ability to do that is the legacy of the scholastics, is that bringing that reasonable approach to bear. What works, what doesn't. What conforms to scripture, what doesn't. And they're going to bring that to bear and separate truth from error. So, even though we may disagree with some of these guys vehemently, they were critical conduits of critical truth in a really, really dark time. And I think we should reject their error, but also have grace on them in their preservation of critical truths. So, yes. absolutely not. So we see error throughout church history. I would say that every era of the church has gotten something wrong. I don't know what we have wrong. I can think of a few things. I'm not but they're not what the things that we don't that we have wrong if as long as we hold to the historic faith. Let's say The faith, for example, but not exclusive to that which is articulated in the Nicene Creed, those truths have not changed. If we have something wrong, maybe it's on our articulation of the free will versus predestination issue. The essentials of salvation we don't have wrong. But there's peripheral things. No church has ever gotten it perfect. Okay? Does that make sense what I'm saying? So um okay i know we need to stop because i'm running over time but so i'm i will be this is my last class Hoyt's going to be picking it up from here um i would like to just thank everybody that's been faithful in coming for the last i don't know when we started october um i really appreciate y'all being here and and just for the opportunity to to teach so i i don't stop happily because i really enjoy this um but i would just like to thank you all for being here and giving me the opportunity, and if you ever want to discuss any of this stuff, or I, you know, I know I had to kind of lump the medieval stuff into just a few classes. If you'd ever want me to come back and just do a history of the church in the Middle Ages, I'd be happy to do that, or who knows what. So, um, but thank you. So, let me uh, just close with prayer, and and then we will be done. Lord, I, th- I, am, I am so grateful that you are the shepherd and that through all the generations of your church, you have continued to shepherd us, your wayward sheep. Even when we have bad ideas, you always raise up a judge to, to lead your people back into right relationship with you. You are the great shepherd of the sheep, and we, we worship you, and we praise you, and we love you, and we are so grateful for all that you have worked out in our lives the lives of people to come, and the lives of those who have loved you and gone before us. In your name, we say all of this by the power of your Spirit. Amen.